0: It's so great to see a lot of you students back, Uh, some of you for the first time. We're excited that you're here with us this evening. We have been studying the book of Mark together for some 21 weeks. We took seven weeks off in the summertime to talk about justice, but we are back. And for those of you that have your first introduction to TRP tonight, I must warn you, this is a very, very, very strange text that we will be looking at this evening. One of the really cool things about just preaching through books of the bible is it forces folks like me and other people who stand up here to talk about things that they might not choose to talk about on any given uh, sunday and this is definitely one of those passages that that kind of has been difficult to think through Um, but i I do think that there's some things to be to be learned from it so This is Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to go ahead and read the the verses from last week as well, just to to bring us up to speed because they're all kind of together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went back, he headed John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the word of God for the people of God. a text that you do not often see in your little daily bread devotional, a text that you don't see an excerpt in your study bible, a very strange story about John the Baptist. We've met John the Baptist early on in the book of Mark as the one who was the forerunner for Jesus' ministry. He was the one that baptized Jesus in the Jordan. In other stories, he kind of put, puts up this, this fuss like, oh no, I can't be the one to baptize you. In Mark, it's a lot more succinct, he baptizes Jesus Um, The heavens open up, different things take place, and then Jesus is able to begin his ministry after the baptism. Then also we see this little throwaway phrase in Mark chapter 1 that says, after John had been put into prison, Jesus began his ministry, preaching and teaching throughout uh, the regions, preaching and teaching this message that we've talked about over and over about the kingdom. The kingdom is coming here, it's invading this place, it's heaven showing up and being present here with me and this message of hope and forgiveness and a future. We don't hear much about John until this story, and Mark tells this story um, longer than any other gospel authors, and and the the reason is a bit curious. We see uh, immediately as the story begins, it says, when Herod heard about this, there's a couple of things that we have to kind of set in place in order to understand what's going on here. When we hear this line, when Herod heard about this, we must first realize that this is not Herod the Great. This is not the same Herod that early on in Jesus' life and ministry and the other gospel accounts hears about a baby being born and is threatened and then wants to kill all the babies under the age of of two. This is not the same guy. This is actually this Herod's dad is Herod the Great and we'll talk about this as we go, but this is a different Herod who had been given a certain region to rule over after his dad, Herod the Great, died. So the first thing that we have to understand is this is not Herod the Great, this is not the person that we uh, lump in with the Christmas story, this is a different ruler in this place, and understand the, the setting of this. For someone who is in power, who is attempting to have people identify him as king and ruler and potentially even messiah, The fact that Jesus is out there doing all these crazy things, healing people and preaching and and kind of creating this excitement for a ruler to hear that sort of stuff, it would have been very, very, very threatening. So there's a lot of undertones here in just this simple statement when Herod heard about this. The second thing that we have to understand is what exactly is Herod hearing about? And this is what we looked at last week. The thing that Herod is hearing about is the ministry of Jesus' disciples. In the, in the immediately preceding text, we have these disciples who are going out with the power and authority that Jesus has invested into them to preach and to teach and to heal and to cast out demons and to do the work that Jesus himself was doing. Herod is hearing about these works, but he's equating what the disciples are doing with what Jesus is actually doing. You could almost look at it. What the disciples are doing is roughly equivalent to increasing Jesus' fame, can you sit up here and get that button? This is the second week in a row when this clicker has been absolute garbage. And, and if things keep going this way, I'm just gonna chuck it up into the, the balcony, okay? So that would not be befitting of a pastor, so I will try to work these things out in my quiet time, reflecting upon people getting their heads chopped off. Okay, here we see this this, this bringing together of Jesus' disciples and the work that they're doing as something that is uh, emblematic of the ministry of Jesus himself. I know that it's it's inappropriate for us just to take these principles out of scripture, rip them out, and then apply them to our lives, but I do wanna pause here for a moment because the things that you do when you are proclaiming yourself to be a follower of Jesus, they matter. The things that you are doing Um, that you might not think have any sort of tie to your faith. They definitely do. Sometimes that's a very negative way where the things that just come naturally out of us are not good at all. Like if I was to just throw this clicker up in the balcony, that would demonstrate to you something about my heart. But it also is true in the conversations that I have with people and the the lack of trust that I have in myself and in others and, and ultimately the lack of trust I might have in God as well. The things that we do at times, um, even unbeknownst to ourselves, are the things that further the gospel for people. Jesus tells a story about whatever you've done to the least of these people, you've done unto me. And and the people that he's talking to say, Lord, when when did I ever get you a glass of water? Or when did I ever clothe you? Or when did I ever do these things? And it's that principle of the, the way that we treat others is emblematic of the faith relationship that we have with Jesus. And I want to just challenge us all uh, in the room here. For some of you, you get a fresh start. You've been home, you're back, you're starting school tomorrow, and it could be that you turn the page and you begin to be very intentional this semester about living for Christ. Whatever that looks like for you. For others of us, it's, it's going back to work tomorrow and, and having those sorts of commitments that we do have in our life actually be meaningful, where people can see that, and I'm not talking about handing out tracts, and I'm not talking about a cheesy fake smile, I'm talking about the love that we have for Christ changes and transforms us from the very inside out. And we see the disciples here, when, when Herod hears about their ministry and the work they're doing, he's equating that with Jesus' fame, it's growing, and this movement, this kingdom movement that he's a part of, that he's inspiring, that he has begun, is furthered by his disciples. Be encouraged by that because it's the seemingly the implication is we also have a hand in the ministry that is furthering these things for Jesus. Uh, this is Robert Stein. He says the successful nature of six different missions within Galilee and Perea by six teams of Jesus' disciples. That's in the, the previous section where Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to go do ministry, those six teams that go out of Jesus' disciples would have made Jesus' name well known to the ruler and the people of these regions. And again, for a ruler in power who's wanting to be king and wanting to be Messiah and wanting to be God on earth, the fact that someone else is doing these things is super threatening. It's not necessarily a good thing uh, for that ruler. Now, just a little bit of of background here. I'm colorblind, so can you guys see those different colors? That's great. I was at the eye doctor a few days ago, and they have this this brand new thing that they test you on. I haven't been in a while, so I'll show my cards here. Um, But, you know, usually it's going in big E, and then you have the different lines, whatever. But now they have a red side and a green side with letters, and the question is, which side looks sharper to you? Which which background color allows these, these words to just kind of show up? And I start freaking out. There's a comedian named Brian Regan that basically talks about the, the stress of the eye exam because you don't wanna get it wrong because if you do, then your glasses are gonna be all jacked up and you're like, uh, uh, option one, no two, no one, no two. And it was, a lot of, it was stressful for me because the red, green, I don't know, whatever. Okay, so here on this, on this map, when Herod the Great dies, there's three of um, his sons that kind of take over different regions We have Archelaus down here at the bottom. It's great. The laser pointer works, but the clicker doesn't work. Okay, we'll work work through that. Um, Archelaus is down here ruling in this region. We have um, a guy named Herod Philip. This is not the guy that they talk about later on in this passage, okay? But Herod Philip is ruling up here, and our guy, Herod Antipas, is ruling in the Galilee region and Perea here um, surrounding the Sea of Galilee and then... Uh, the Dead Sea. So Herod Antipas is ruling and reigning in these regions that have been allotted to him after the death of his dad. The question that becomes the most important question of the day for Herod is, who is this guy? The things that I keep hearing, the things that he's doing, who is he? This is a popular question of the day because nobody really had categories to to understand who Jesus was. Now, 2,000 years removed, we look back and we say, oh, of course, but at that moment, they didn't quite necessarily know who he was. There was three different options. The first option was Elijah. We can see back in Malachi this, this prophecy of God sending a messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This sets up the next passage in chapter four, where it says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah to, to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, before that happens. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is a really strange story because back in uh, Kings, the passage of Kings, where Elijah is described, he does not die. There are two people in the Bible, three if you count Jesus, but I wasn't going there. There's two people that don't have earthly deaths in the Bible. The first one is very early on. It's a guy named Enoch. He just walks with the Lord, and then he kind of disappears. The second one is Elijah, who is taken up in a chariot of fire, according to the story in Kings. Elijah doesn't have this, this death that people would expect he's taken away. And then people begin to, to create these prophecies of he's going to come back at some point. And this is an important moment for people. And they begin to anticipate Elijah returning to set in motion all this stuff where the day of the Lord is going to show up. This is not a good thing for anyone outside of the family. This is a day where God says, that's it, it's over. These are my people and that's good. But the rest of you, so here we see Elijah as the precursor for that. And some people are starting to say, maybe Jesus is, is Elijah. He keeps talking about this kingdom. He keeps doing crazy stuff. Perhaps he's the guy that's, that's bringing this to be. Another potential uh, option would be just Jesus as a prophet. And this isn't any old run-of-the-mill prophet. This is a prophet like the ones of old. That office had seemingly ceased for some time and now Jesus being the very different, powerful, authoritative teacher that he is is being put in a different category and some people began to question if Jesus is a prophet like like we should be expecting here. Again, these anticipations of the end and Jesus seeming to demonstrate something different was happening. Jesus himself says a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Jesus himself is likening his ministry to that of a prophet. Later on in this book, in chapter eight, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way, he asks his disciples, this is a key moment in the story, and we'll get there in, I don't know, six or seven weeks, whatever. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. These were the main categories that people were working with to understand Jesus. He is either Elijah, he's either some weird form of John the Baptist, or he's either a prophet. And Herod is trying to put Jesus into these categories as well. For Herod, he concludes, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. This is sort of strange, uh, because here, this is N.T. Wright, says, Herod proposed that Jesus might be John the Baptist back from the dead. That would explain, he thought, why Jesus had these remarkable powers. If he'd been down to death and back again, anything might be possible. The things, catch this, the things that Jesus was doing was completely radical, As we sit here and we hear these stories, the ridiculousness of them is sort of, is sort of gone because we have heard about them our entire lives for some of us and they've just become some so old hat. Um, but here for this group, they could not understand how Jesus did the things that he was doing and why Jesus said the things that he was saying. And, And they didn't quite understand it, so they came up with things like, he must be that guy that I beheaded who's gone down to death itself and gained some crazy powers, and then he's now come back up and doing ministry. Now, for the thinking people in the room, that doesn't make a lot of sense for a couple of reasons. The big one is John and Jesus hung out together at the same time. Right? So other people have tried to nuance this a bit, saying what is envisioned is probably either one, that just as Elijah's spirit came to rest upon Elisha, so the spirit of John the Baptist had come to rest upon Jesus. Remember that crazy guy that's taken up in a chariot of fire? Before he leaves, he basically passes his prophetic mantle. Whenever you say those words, you have to say it like that. I don't know how often in casual conversation you're talking about the prophetic mantle, but when you do, no? Okay, I'm glad Mandy shares my odd, oddness. So before Elijah is taken up into a chariot of fire, which is crazy, he passes on his prophetic mantle to Elisha. And in something similar, they would say John the Baptist is this uh, powerful, authoritative person. He's passing his authority on to Jesus. And Jesus goes on to do greater things than even John the Baptist did. The second option would be that Herod was simply saying in exasperation, this is John the Baptist all over again. You know, it's like, the, the person that I thought was the worst, that I chopped his head off, now I've gotta deal with this guy again. So all these, all these things are happening. We're trying to figure out who Herod thinks that Jesus is, but he deals at least in terms of Jesus as John the Baptist in some weird way. Now this is worth thinking about because there are comparisons to make between John the Baptist and Jesus. For example, at the baptism, John is the one who is out in the desert creating this movement of people. Everyone is leaving the cities to come out into the middle of nowhere to hang out with a guy wearing camel hair and eating locust and honey. Side note, we didn't necessarily observe Halloween as a family growing up. Mainly, I think, in hindsight, because my parents were lazy. It's not because we had, you know demon oppression sort of like, oh no, it's just mom probably didn't want to take us anywhere. So we went across the street to my grandmother's house and down the street to my aunt and uncle's house. And one year I dressed up as John the Baptist. (laughs) If you want to be a hit at a holiday party, John the Baptist, I just want to submit that to you. Okay. So at, at the baptism, John has gotten all these people to come out and to start being baptized this wasn't necessarily the way that it happens for us today where they're making public professions of, of faith. This is, they are radically realigning their lives to follow something completely different than what the government or what the religious society was offering at the moment. This isn't, I'm following Jesus and now I just wanna show that. This is, I'm, I'm going in a totally different direction. So of course that was creating some difficulties with leaders seeing this movement that was being brought about in the desert and Jesus is out there participating in that. We also see uh, these two are tied together in ministry. John is out in the desert doing all this crazy stuff and it's not until John is put into prison that Jesus' ministry begins. There's a timing where John is playing an integral part in Jesus' own ministry. It's not until John can do this work that Jesus shows up to begin it. There's also the kingdom, this announcement of heaven invading earth, of God beginning to do what we've been waiting for God to do for centuries. It's happening. It's now. It's here. That was in the desert with John, and that was with Jesus as he's doing this ministry. We also see this invitation, again, John inviting people out to be baptized, to join a movement, for lack of a better term to align themselves with something that was completely and utterly different. And Jesus is doing the same thing. This is not close your eyes, bow your heads, raise a hand if you want to follow Jesus. This is whatever you have going on, you leave it and you follow me. And if you can't do that, you're not worthy of following me. But Jesus, just let me bury my dad first. You can stay, let the dead bury themselves. We got stuff to do. Are you with me or are you not with me? Like Jesus was kind of laying down the gauntlet to allow to to invite people into this this movement. We also see death as a way that links John and Jesus together. The reason why Mark tells this story is not because he just wants to go on a side and tell you what he wore for Halloween. That's not really connected to anything that's going on, just an attempt to keep people awake. It's in order to understand Jesus, hear the story of this guy getting his head chopped off. People describe the Gospels as passion stories with extended introductions. The force and the focus of these stories is Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's so many similarities between John and what happens to him and Jesus, even at the very end where it says he gets his head chopped off and they present it and they're just kind of showing it around. And then his followers, what do they do? They go there and they get his body and they bury it. Does it sound familiar? People following Jesus saying, we just want to take him down and, and, and bury him because that's, that's what we need to do. Like there's these resonances between these stories and Jesus where it's, it's this shadow of death that's, that's uniting these things. And ultimately, I think what Mark wants us to do is to see everything in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Every aspect, and we could, we could rip this off and take it to our lives, every aspect of your life is lived within the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb. Every decision that we make, everything that we say, every relationship that we have as Christians, it should be reflective of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And not in a way that's like a guilt-inducer we say, oh, well, I guess I should stop watching that show. No, it's like we're completely reoriented to follow in a different way than we had been previously. There's a change, a radical change that takes place when we understand what's going on here and we see the hints of that in this story. This is a, a painting from Caravaggio. It's Salome and the Beheading of John the Baptist. Um pretty dark stuff, but we're going to transition now into uh, Mark retelling the story of how John met his end, and I think that we can pull some stuff fr- from that to understand who Jesus is with a little bit more clarity. Mark chapter 6 and verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to John to have him arrested. He had him bound and put into prison. Uh, he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, this is interesting because in this, in this text, most scholars would say it's actually not. Philip. It's especially not Philip, the guy on the map who is up in the top. It's not that guy. It's a different person. But the, the, the key is this guy is marrying his brother's wife. And John had been going around saying, it's not lawful for you to do that. That's not a good idea. And this was creating some tension between Herod and his woman Herodias and all the different things. And she just wanted him to die and go away because he, she was, he was really messing her game up. This is a family tree. Let's help me get a, me get a pulse on the audience. Are you guys okay? I know this is, we're not in school, but stay with me. There's a little bit of a payoff here, okay? So we're looking at a family tree. This is Herod the Great. This is a guy in the beginning of the story who is wanting to kill all these little kids because they are threatening his position. This is uh, the person that we hear about in, in stories. This is Herod. He has a couple of kids. His kids are Herod who could be known as Philip in this story, and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is our guy. This is the guy that's hearing about all these things and is trying to figure out who the heck Jesus is, okay? Now, keep going, Sammy. These folks are half-brothers together. Herod is marrying Herodias, who is the granddaughter of Herod the Great, and he is, or she is the niece of Herod. Catch that? Stick with me. Herod is marrying his niece. Now, what happens is, Herodias is married to this Herod with the, the X over him, and she meets up with Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas just plays a really cool game, like, "Hey baby, what's up? I know you're married to my half-brother, but you know you know? So he's pretty, he's pretty sly. And basically what happens there is she says, other Herod, you, you're a goner. I don't want this to be us anymore and I want to marry your, your half-brother, okay? Keep going. So here we have Herod Antipas marrying Herodias, who again, give me the slide, is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. This is Antipas's niece and also Antipas' sister-in-law. So for those of you keeping track at home, go ahead, Sammy, um, this, is, this is problematic, okay? So we have all of this intermarrying, we have all of this incestru- incestuousness and inc- thanks. Okay, we have all these, these okay? Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, again, because John is saying, this isn't cool, what's happening here? Dude, you've married your step, step-niece, granddaughter, no, all of these different categories that should prohibit you from marrying and aren't, aren't necessarily stopping you. Uh, but she was not able to, um, to kill John the Baptist because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So we have these, these problems here that are, are bringing to bear a very strange relationship between Herod Antipas who has married his half-brother's wife who is also his niece. Which brings us to, oh brother, where art thou? And a very logical connection. Uh, last week we talked about this, when you read scripture, for folks especially back there in this time, they would have heard things to kind of link stories together. O oh, Brother Where Art Thou is a great movie that in the very beginning says this is based on Homer's Odyssey. And it's almost as if in order to understand O oh, Brother, you have to understand the Odyssey because there's overlap and there's interplay between these stories. For an ancient reader of this Debacle between Herod, Antipas, and Herodias, and John the Baptist, and Herodias wanting to kill John the Baptist, and all of these things going on here. The thing that they would have been hearing would have been Ahab and Jezebel and their mutual disdain for Elijah. Remember Elijah, he keeps coming up over and over, and in this story, there's resonances that for an ancient audience, they would have seen, man, Jezebel really hated Elijah the prophet because of the things that he was saying and she just wanted to to completely get him out of there. And in this story we have Herodias who's really ticked because John the Baptist is saying that her marriage is unlawful and she just wants him dead. So much so that she tells her, her daughter to request his head on a plate. For people that, that hear these stories, they, they can make these connections and they can link them together. And all throughout, especially in Mark, we see these resonances of these Old Testament stories coming, coming to play. Verse 21, finally opportune time came on his birthday. Herod gave a banquet. He's got all his friends there. He's got people that he wants to impress. He has people that he does not want to look foolish in front of. They are probably drinking and eating and things are going great. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, now this is the daughter from Herod, other Herod, and Herodias. She comes in and dances. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Again, we have Antipas and Herodias, and now we're introduced to another character named Salome. This this chart is a debacle and a half. Herod the Great is married to 10 different people. They've all got kids. They're all intermarrying. They're all over the place, and it's, it's a problem. But here we see that Salome is the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, and uh, on the mom's side, and the granddaughter of Herod the Great on the dad's side. Do the math there. And we also see that Antipas is related to Salome here. It's his uh, niece on his side, grandniece on the mom's side, and stepdaughter, and she comes in to dance for him. So one guy says, to bring this up and put it in a nice bow, He says Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Her first husband was a son of Herod the Great, hence her uncle. His name, according to Josephus, was also Herod. Herodias divorced this Herod and then married his half-brother named Herod Antipas, who was her uncle too. She seems to, I love this, this is a commentary, and this is like the one little bit of humor that you can find in any of this. It says, she seems to have liked uncles and men named Herod, and there was a lot of both around thanks to Herod the Great. Beautiful insight. Thank you, Joel Marcus. I appreciate that. Um, Thus, Salome, the one who is dancing and pleasing all these people, probably looked a little bit different than this because that's not pleasing to most, Herodias' daughter by her first marriage was at the same time Antipas's niece on her father's side and his grandniece on her mother's side and his stepdaughter. What in the world? Now, I've got to tell you. <laughs> I've got to make this public confession because it's good for the soul. My wife and I have become entranced Into the beautiful smuttiness that is Bachelor in Paradise. I do not want anyone else to admit this, although I know you're in this room right now as we speak. Certainly one or two, maybe. (laughs) The premise of this show is all these lovesick, heartbroken people showing up on an island and getting these romantical dates and they just stab each other in the back and one day you're watching the show and the girl who cries all the time is dating this guy but this guy has actually started dating this other person and the girl who cries a lot becomes ticked and is dating this other person. And this is what we're seeing in this story when you hear about Antipas like his stepdaughter slash niece slash grandniece dancing and being pleasing to them. It's, it's a debacle and a half. Um, and just trying to figure out what's going on here. Finally, this opportune time has come and the, the daughters of Herodias came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. There's debate among scholars about A, how old this young lady is. Some people say anywhere from 12 to 15 or so, like she's of marriageable age. That doesn't sound of marriageable age in our context, but it was back then. And also this verb about how she pleased them there's a lot of innuendos going on there. Some people would say, use your imagination, and some people would say, no, it's just the fact that she had this really great dance, and they were all like, yes, that's a great dance. Either way, the the end result of that is the king, who is Herod Antipas, says, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And if we think again about these resonances, this this is the Esther story all over again. Most people can see these ties here where uh, Esther is pleasing to the king and basically gets whatever she wants to save her people. And there's these these hints of this story here. It says uh, he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom. Now, of course, this is a little bit of hyperbole, but here, whatever you want, stepdaughter slash niece slash grandniece, I will give to you. So she goes out and asks her mom, what should I ask? This kind of proves that they hadn't been in cahoots up to this point about this this moment, but she sees an opportunity and probably has conversations of her her mother stored in the back of her head where she's just bagging on John the Baptist saying, I wish I could just have that guy killed. So they have this moment here, and of course her mom replies, I want John the Baptist dead. So Salome goes in, and that's exactly what she asks for. The way the story uh, resolves is Herod doesn't want to disappoint his guests. He doesn't want to look foolish. He kind of gets caught between a rock and a hard place because he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, yet he's said that he'll do whatever she wants, and she asks this thing. So he executes the order, and John the Baptist is dead. What in the world do you do with this story filled with genealogies and incest and crazy relationships? How do you make any sorts of ties here for us? I will submit to you there are three potential ways to make this relevant um, for us today. The first one is, in the very beginning of this story, the reason why Antipas is so scared slash ticked slash disconcerted is because of the things that Jesus and Jesus' followers were doing. Because they were demonstrating that the kingdom was not something that was just talked about far away out there, but it was something that was here, it was present, it was happening, and that was threatening to the ruler of the time. Two, Two subways where we could go with this. One, what are we doing as a people, to allow the name of Jesus to be proclaimed and to be viewed as great. For most people that scan through like their Facebook profiles, you just see kind of the things that, that Christians talk about, I need to check myself here so I'm not super negative. A lot of times it's, um, it's ultimately not helpful for the advancement of the kingdom. It's ultimately not helpful for people seeing a different and better image of who Jesus is. It's ultimately not helpful for people to see hope and life and forgiveness and peace through Christ. I hope that we're able to go beyond social media into the relationships that we have with people are actually touching lives and transforming them so that they begin to reassess who Jesus is, what Jesus offers, and the life that is available through a committed relationship to Christ. Because we are modeling that in a way that is compelling. The second way that we can take this is, um, in this story, this ragtag group of disciples were catching the ear of the powers that be. I think a lot of times we diminish our potential influence and impact and we don't allow Jesus to do big things because we limit our own calling, we limit our gifting, we limit our talents and we don't allow Jesus to work through us in really big, huge ways that might catch the ear of the powers that be. Everything that we do is for the sake of Christ. Everything that we do should be hopefully something that advances that name and his fame for the world around to see. The second way that we can understand this is everything that we do is in the shadow of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. This story is just, it's dark, it's sinister, it's a guy getting his head chopped off. But for the author of Mark, it's, this is a precursor for the sacrifice that Jesus will make for us. John, as the the forerunner, is again setting the tone to give himself up for something that he knew was much greater than he was. And Jesus completes the mission by allowing restoration and reconciliation and redemption to happen because of his self-sacrifice. Everything, every little bit of our lives should have this shadow of the cross and the empty tomb that informs us and that people can see in the way that we act to those around us. And the third and final way that we can understand this is for Mark, he's not writing as this stuff is unfolding. He's writing to a community that's in the midst of Struggle, persecution, disaster. These people have their lives on the line. If so-and-so hears about this, then we might die. And these stories that Mark is telling of, of John the Baptist's sacrifice and also Jesus' sacrifice, it's ultimately a call to say, be faithful. Trust that God is present with you. And remain in the fight even when it seems like everything it's against you. For some of you that are sitting here right now, everything is against you. That is not a theory. That is not a somewhere out there. Some of you are living in the moment of disaster and um, difficulty. And the message from the story is don't give up. Don't give up. Hope is available to you through Christ. For the rest of us that are sitting here that are not in those moments, that's a call to arms where we don't just sit back and say a prayer and say, Jesus, I hope you take care of that person because they really need you. It's, it's, it's you stop what you're doing and you care for the people that need you to care for them. And thus, hopefully someday Jesus would say something similar to whatever you did to the least of these, you actually, you were doing it for me. It's not the missions trips that we go on. It's not the tracks that we hand out. It's not the sermons that we preach. It's the things that we do in the quietness of our own hearts that people might not even realize that we are doing out of a radical obedience and commitment to Christ that could potentially change this world. It starts with one conversation. It starts with one moment of vulnerability where you say, will you forgive me? It starts with one obedient surrender where you die to yourself and you allow yourself to be used in a great and mighty way by Jesus, I'm convinced that when we live that way, his fame and his greatness will be proclaimed to the very highest level in this world. When we live in a way that is consistent with the image that he has set before us, real change can happen. So let's take this back to the desert for a moment with John the Baptist allowing people and inviting people into this moment. I hope that in the midst of all the crazy, you still hear the invitation that is present today to align yourself with one who is greater than you, to align yourself with one who is wanting to allow you to be forgiven and to spread that to the masses, to align yourself with one whose life's mission was to love the unlovable, to invite the outcast into the table, to do life in a completely different way. And that invitation is still true for us today. Repent and be baptized. If you understand it in its context, it's align yourself with this kingdom vision of Jesus and do the work that he's asking you to do.